Arguments are ammunition. What did he expect in return? Should he not have given you money? Was the money not speech? It was just money after all. It was just like a hooker, I assume. So are you the prostitute? How did this work? So before you take them into battle... It's a fact. It's a it's fact. It's a fact. I'll, I'll, buy, I'll give you the fact of this. You did! You gave me the fact Come and go! Let's be sure that they work. Welcome to The Proving Grounds, a production of The New Guards, where weak arguments come to die. I'm Jacob Hibbard, and I'm here with Richie Angel. We're so excited to have you joining us for another episode of The Proving Ground. Just to remind you what The Proving Ground is, we take arguments or a political issue that's in the news right now, and we look at the best and worst arguments on both sides of that issue and help you learn how to make a better case for what you believe in. So for those of you who are just finding us, or if you're a, long, a listener for the last few episodes, you can find us on YouTube. We're also on Spotify, on Anchor, on iTunes, Google Play, Google Podcasts, and we're getting on more uh, platforms each week. So if you haven't already, please be sure to go subscribe on YouTube, like us on Facebook, you know, subscribe on Spotify, do all those things. That's where we are, people. So we, we hope that you'll, you'll come over there and leave us a like, leave us a review. We always love to hear your feedback. So this week, we're going to be talking about democracy and spreading democracy, American foreign policy. So Richie, can you set the stage for us about of what we're going to be talking about? In a world. So we, uh, uh, on a couple episodes ago, we talked about the Electoral College. There was kind of uh, an accepting of the premise on certain of those arguments that democracy is bad. This week, we're just going to accept the premise democracy is, at the very least, as Winston Churchill said, it's the worst government except for all the others. So democracy, totally fine. Let's just accept the premise at the outset so we don't have to get into those arguments. But we're going to talk about the U.S.'s role in spreading democracy throughout the world, particularly in the Middle East, as we've seen for the last almost two decades now uh, with Afghanistan and Iraq and now tensions with Iran. Uh, mounting up. We've seen issues with Syria, but this has been going on for a very long time. And just as we saw in the recent Democratic debates with that little face-off between Representative Tim Ryan and Representative Tulsi Gabbard, it's quite a hot topic, uh, even within parties right now, is what is the U.S.'s role outside of our own country and what's our duty to spreading democracy throughout the world? On the one hand, you have you know, people saying that we should be largely keeping to ourselves, respecting our own rights and, and governing ourselves and letting other people deal with their own issues. Um, but then you have, on the other end, people like George W. Bush with primacy or Harry S. Truman with his Truman Doctrine, that either when democracy is under threat, we should go bolster it, or where people are suffering, we should go introduce democracy to them so they can thrive. So we're going to go through the weakest and the strongest arguments on either side of that debate. So to start us off with the a weak argument that I believe that I'm bringing uh, for intervention or for spreading of democracy is the idea that spreading democracy worked in post World War II Germany and Japan. Uh, we we totally annihilate, blow them all to bits. We win World War II, then we spend a bunch of time set up a democracy, and now both countries are thriving democracies, thriving economically, high standards of living. It worked. So if we can do it then, there, we can do it in the Middle East. We can do it in Iraq. We can do it in Syria. We can do it in Iran. So this is what you would call a availability bias. It's the idea that because we have a recent or a certain instance that's readily available that we can bring up, this little bit of evidence trumps any evidence to the contrary. And so, well, because it worked here, we can ignore all the times it failed. And so 
it's it's a it's a way of messing with data. You can you see this a lot in people when they use data arguments of we're going to focus on this one bit of evidence that supports our conclusion and ignore everything else that might you know undermine our argument or undermine our conclusion. The weakest argument on that same side that I would bring to the table for spreading democracy is the George W. Bush line, freedom is the cry of every human heart, where that might have sounded like a good line then, but as we can see now with hindsight at the very least, that that was operating under a false premise. Freedom is not the cry of every human heart. Not everyone longs to be free. Now, maybe they would be better off being free, but they don't always know that, and it disregards something that psychologists call the normalcy bias, which is largely the reason that, for instance, someone who's been abused in a relationship and then they get out of that relationship, they go get into another abusive relationship. People tend to stay in the same kinds of situations and cultures that they're used to, even if those things are negative. So people who've just always grown up under maybe a tyrannical system or an oppressive regime, when one regime leaves, they're going to get ready for the next oppressive regime. It's all they're used to. They don't really see that freedom as an option. It doesn't sink in for them. Yeah, no, that's a great example. Uh, so on the kind of non-intervention side or the isolation side, um, a common argument you'll hear when we're just discussing foreign policy generally, but especially when it comes to spreading democracy, especially within the last few decades, is uh, if someone is advocating for spreading democracy, those who respond tend to label that person as a warmonger or as a crusader, or they say something like, well, the military industrial complex is driving this or that. And the problem with this argument is you might be right. You could be right. Maybe this person does like war. Maybe the military industrial complex is a thing and it is pulling strings. The problem with this argument though is it's an ad hominem attack. You're saying that something is bad because that person has bad motives or is a, has a bad, or is a bad person. You're not actually addressing the case that they're making. They're, you know, they might be making a really long, complicated argument why we need to, why we need to get involved or why we need to spread democracy here. And you just saying that, well, you're just a warmonger, that's name calling. That's not, you haven't defeated their argument. You've just labeled them as something and are expecting everybody else to, to believe you that they're a bad person and to ignore what they're saying. So it's another example of the ad hominem attack. It's something that we've seen in other previous podcasts is because this kind of tactic is fairly common. Another really poor argument on the side of spreading democracy or of not spreading democracy rather is that what happens abroad doesn't affect us and therefore it's none of our concern. This is a bad argument because it begs the question. It's circular reasoning. We actually don't know from that argument. You haven't shown us that what happens abroad actually has no effect on us because you could make the argument that things that happen abroad affect us in terms of refugee crises or uh, economically through tariffs and trade and all sorts of other issues. There are a lot of ways that, uh, that things that happen abroad could have an effect on us. And so you just saying, well, it happened in another country, therefore it's none of our business, kind of begs the question It doesn't prove the argument that you're wanting it to make. So this leads to the strong arguments on both sides of this whole debate with regards to spreading democracy. And so starting with a strong argument in favor of spreading democracy, this is an argument that's called the democratic peace argument. And it's essentially that if you look at history, there hasn't been a single instance so far where two countries who are both democratic, who have functioning democracies, and there's ways and different ways that people define what's functioning, but a functioning democracy, two functioning democracies have never gone to war with each other. And that 
that being a democracy changes a country and changes the way it conducts itself in foreign policy in such a way that leads to less war. And so the idea that if two countries are democracies, there's going to be some sorts of, some sort of shared values that both countries have. And so the fact that we're both democracies means that we both have some sort of shared values that makes it so that we're less likely to have conflict with each other. We are going to be more likely to try to soften the edges or when we do have conflict because we have those shared values, we're more likely to want to change to find a peaceful resolution to this conflict than if you than if one country's a dictatorship because that kind of takes away an ideological weapon off the table i can't accuse you of being an evil dictatorship if you're a democracy and so it, it lowers rhetoric also the fact that democracies the people who are perceivably cha making the decisions and doing the elections and all those things are the people who would be fighting in the wars democracies in theory are not controlled by the elites and so if we're both democracies our people who are going to be the ones fighting and dying and paying the money for these things don't want to fight and die and bleed for most things. And so we're not going to have conflict because of these shared values in this shared system. Now the pushback, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say two things that I would push back on that are number one, try to frame this as an appeal to ignorance to just say, well, because I've never seen it, therefore it doesn't exist because it hasn't happened before. That means it won't happen in the future. You could try to push back on it that way. Or you could also say that there have been democracies that through democratic means have converted themselves into something else like Nazi Germany, for instance, um, and then have gone to war with other democratic nations. So even if you put democracy in place into this this area, they could democratically vote for something worse and then go to war with other democratic nations. So it's, you still haven't solved the issue. And I would just add to that the fact that democracy in its kind of full-blown Western ideal that we, when we talk about democracy, kind of what comes to mind is relatively young. We're talking about hundreds of years of world history as opposed to centuries, millennia, uh, of world history. And so we just have a really small sample size. And so you can make the argument, well, it just hasn't happened yet. That, you know, that is kind of a little bit of a fallacious argument itself, but at the same time, it does push back against the idea that, well, it's never happened. It's never going it, to, it won't happen. You can say, well, we just haven't been around a lot. We have a small sample size. You can also push back and say, and this is kind of like within international relations, within international kind of politics and how the different camps of, of think, you, there's one group that's called realism that's really focused on power and that states, countries interact with each other based off power interests. And so you basically would say then, well, we haven't seen a war yet because we haven't had a situation in which two democracies have had interests collide to the point where war is, was, is on the table. There's always a line where eventually if that line gets crossed we'll go to war regardless of who the other country is that those power dynamics and the importance of power to me as a country still exists in a democracy as it would in a dictatorship and so it just hasn't happened yet and that it's not democracy that's preventing conflict it's the fact that there hasn't been a collision of power interests yet between these nations what system they have domestically is irrelevant uh, we just haven't had the same we haven't had the necessary power clash or the clash of interests that's needed you know their domestic system be damned yeah the other strong argument i think on this side for why we should be spreading democracy or at least preserving democracy in other nations where it exists is that america doesn't exist in a vacuum there are a lot of countries in this world and you can't completely cut yourself off from them the world is better 
when it's freer. And if America is the only free nation in the world and we're surrounded by oppressive regimes, how long do you think that realistically we're going to last? So the more freedom that's in the world, the better we are, better off we are, as I mentioned earlier in economics and you know, avoiding refugee crises and things like that, but also just in terms of national security. We're safer when more people are free and, uh, and there's less conflict brewing between nations, which as Jacob pointed out with his argument, there's, few, there's less conflict when there are more democratic nations at the table. So the pushback to this argument is that the United States, is, there's, a, there's several ways. One way that you could bring up is saying, you know, kind of a so what kind of argument. Uh, but, you know, the United States geographically is incredibly isolated in the sense that we have major oceans on both coasts. And then so if everything is going to pot in another part of the world, it is very, very, very difficult for that to directly affect us and our interests. It's difficult to say that a border dispute between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan is somehow affecting America and you know, is entering our vacuum, so to speak. Or if there's a genocide going on in Rwanda, while it is obviously horrible, how does that affect my little family who lives in rural Arkansas? Why should, we, why should my son have to go fight and potentially die or I pay taxes over you know, a tribal dispute in Central Africa? So yes, while yes, you know, we don't exist in a vacuum, the vast majority of these cases wouldn't really constitute entering our sphere anyway. I mean, if this is Nazi Germany charging across the waters, okay, that seems like something more akin to that, that is affecting us as opposed to a lot of these smaller conflicts or nations that are on the completely other side of the world that can't even hope to touch us, uh, their problems and whether or not they're dem democratic affecting our security and our interests. I would also push back on the argument by saying, like Jacob alluded to, so what? There are a lot of things in this world where we would be better off if things operated a certain way, but what right does that give us to then go enforce that with troops and boots on the ground uh, especially if you have to invade somebody else's sovereign territory to force them to do it. You know, it, maybe we're better off with a free world, but if the world doesn't want to be free, is that our place to go send our troops to make it that way? Yeah, what, what are the costs involved with that decision? How much blood and treasure are you willing to spend for a potential future, not utopia, but a potentially better future as opposed to a more secure Re, I guess you could say a case for a more secure, certain present that you're dealing with. So that leads us to the arguments against. And so the argument that I picked for the strongest against spreading of democracy, again, pulling up back on kind of inter international relations theory, is what would be called the state, the state moralist argument, which is that governments or states exist to protect the rights or interests of their citizens. And that the morality of a, of a state or a country's actions is, is evaluated based on whether those actions forwarded or protect the, protected the rights or interests of that country. And so spreading democracy doesn't, in most cases, really, that's not for, that's not government, the government or your country doing something to secure your rights or forward your interests. That is, you know, costly. It's putting blood and treasure on the line. And you can make the case that, that this is not a right securing or an interest securing adventure, so to speak. And so it's an immoral action for that government or that state to take in the foreign policy world. 
the way that I would push back on this one is to say that this argument potentially proves too much, that uh, there is a line somewhere where just because it's not affecting us directly doesn't mean that we should also, that we shouldn't go in and help these people, whether they're suffering from you know, the Holocaust or from slavery or the Rwandan genocide or the annexation of Crimea or Venezuela or any of these places, uh, you know, Syria, the citizens being gassed there. There's a lot of places where people are suffering and there's some disagreement as to whether or not we should be there in every case, but at least in some of these cases, shouldn't we? And so just because we have a duty to our own primarily, that doesn't mean that we can't also go out and help others. Yeah, no, it's essentially, it's kind of within the foreign international relations world, this kind of argument that Richie's making is kind of, it's called the right to protect that you have, well, no, responsibility to protect, excuse me, a responsibility to protect others and that basic human rights and basic morality does impose a positive sort of duty on you to help others when they're in these kinds of needs. And so, like, like Richie said, you know, the United States government has a special responsibility for your rights and for your interests. That doesn't preclude you from helping others. A slight pushback that someone might say to that is, well, you know, you as an individual are free to help. Why should you force me? Because whenever government acts, it is collective action. Why should someone who doesn't want to be involved be forced to contribute either through their time, their treasure, or their service in the armed forces? So that's just a little bit of kind of the back and forth that you see on that one. Richie, what's the one that you picked for the strongest uh, to not intervene or not to spread democracy? Uh, the strongest argument, I think, for not spreading democracy is to point out the irony of forcing people to be free. Um, you can't force someone to be free. Freedom has to be chosen by people. It spoils them on the idea of freedom, right? Just like I have a friend who was once force-fed a sandwich when he was a child to the point that it made him throw up. He still, to this day, it is an adult. He cannot eat sandwiches. He just is so repulsed by that one memory. If you try to cram democracy down someone's throat who doesn't want it, they're not going to want it in the future. And it's antithetical to the entire notion of a free society anyway. Now, the, the pushback that you'll see with this one is that there are plenty of places that do want democracy, but they're being oppressed and they can't get it. You'll see this most recently with places like Venezuela. So we're just helping them achieve a freedom that they've already made clear that they have chosen. So we're not imposing freedom on them. We're helping them get the freedom that they want. And just to flesh out a little bit more what Richie's talking about, uh, there's a lot, there's a, a strong kind of view within kind of political philosophy, political theory about how democracy even developed the way it is here in the United, in the, in the West and you know, the, the European and American model where this is centuries of development that's happening here, where there are cultural and religious factors playing a role with each other that you can't replicate at the end of a barrel. That you can't just, okay, we're going to put all this stuff into a pot and we're going to stir it up and put it on the, on the stove for five minutes and all of a sudden, poof, hey, we have democracy. There are things like the Protestant work ethic and the priesthood of all believers that Max Weber pointed to is helping to develop an idea of democracy where individuals are empowered to take responsibility for their own spirituality and that leads naturally to taking responsibility for your political future and your own political success and your, 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 your own well-being. And then you have things like the 30 years war where you know nations didn't exist and you know there was no such thing as France or Germany in, in Europe for centuries until the 30 years war and this kind of post treaty of westphalia nationalism where now there's some sort of common identity that now exists that 
didn't exist before so that as soon as we get power, you know, there's still going to be some sort of faction, but there's not going to be the same level of as soon as one group gets power through democratic means, they're not immediately going to turn around and start killing other groups, which is what you can see um, in the Middle East where, you know, as soon as the Sunnis take power, the Shia, you know, the Shias are really in trouble and vice versa. And so you can't, you can't force something that took centuries of organic time to develop and, and expect it to work. But like Richie said, there are places that want this now that have been developing it, that have been, you know, you can learn from other people's experience. You know, we have history that is widely available. So I don't have to go through the 30 years war to learn the lesson of the 30 years war, which is that some sort of nationalism or some sort of common common identity needs to be fostered. And if we've developed one, why do we need to wait around for another hundred years to try to meet some sort of invisible barrier to, to make it work. I mean, the United States was incredibly young and it had its democracy and it was a bunch of people flowing to one place and it didn't take centuries and centuries and centuries to turn into a full-blown democracy. It kind of comes out full-blown as soon as it's founded. So those are some of the arguments that, that we've found that uh, are on the pro and the, on the con side of spreading democracy in, Amer in the world, that America's role should be spreading democracy. If you like the video, please you know, share your ideas. What do you think is the strongest argument for or against spreading democracy? Is it kind of a responsibility to protect? Do you think that we have a, a responsibility to help other people? Or are you kind of on the more isolationist side where it's none of our business? If it doesn't affect us, leave it alone. Leave your comments below. We love reading your guys' feedback. We love seeing the arguments that you come up with. And if it's a good one, we'll, we're, we're going to share it next time on, on the show. Uh, like we said, we want to remind you, please like, subscribe, share, share this content. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, iTunes, and hopefully soon we'll also be able to get on other platforms like Stitcher. But for, you know, and you as well, please also, if you want to reach out to us individually, you can email us. You can also follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. But we hope you enjoyed your time talking about a little bit of foreign policy with us, and we'll see you next week.